Part three, chapter ten of Canada's Hundred Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesay. Part three, chapter ten. After the battle. He's beat it. The word passed with incredible rapidity. His wind was up and he had gone back to the canal. From corps commander to men in the ranks, it was a tremendous relief. The battle was won. Our sacrifices had not been in vain. Combray, sign manual of our victory, lay within our grasp and might be taken at any hour. As a matter of fact, this was not quite the case. His power for offense was indeed broken. But for some days yet, he lay sullenly on his line running across the Bantigny ravine. Only at night great fires could be seen far in his rear. Some stiff fighting had still to be done before Combray fell, and the enemy was cleared out of the triangle on the hither side of the Scheldt. But on October 2nd, after five days of the hardest continuous fighting in which the Canadian Corps had ever been engaged, knowledge came to us that the victory was ours. Four Canadian divisions, with the 11th British Division, had met and overwhelmed twelve enemy divisions. The fight had been over his chosen ground, where he had lavished every art of defense. After the initial surprise of the morning of September 27th, it had all been ding-dong uphill work, a battle entirely of infantry and artillery. So great importance had the men attached to the position that he had squandered men in its defense on a scale that recalled the early years of the war. But not then, nor for weeks afterwards, did we realize the magnitude of the victory. It was the last battle on the grand scale in which the Canadian Corps was engaged. Thereafter followed much hard fighting, particularly before Valencay, and even up to the very gates of Mont. But it was on a divisional rather than on a corps scale. The corner was turned. The enemy was so badly beaten that hereafter his one desire was to get away. And though he fought stout rearguard actions, they were but in the nature of delaying battles. Pressure was too great and continuous for him to attempt to make a permanent stand. He had had his belly full of the Canadian Corps. His best divisions had been washed out and could never again take their place in the battle line. The vaunted Hindenburg system was no more. Skillful use, though he made of the country, he had no prepared line, no elaborate system of trenches and wire, no nests of concrete machine-gun posts on which to rally his retreating forces and make a last bid for victory. He was bankrupt both in resource and plan. He had lost so many guns that his gunners were chary of working their batteries from advanced positions. His efforts indeed were devoted to getting back his heavier batteries to safer positions in the rear, and more and more he depended upon his devoted machine-gunners. The victory was complete indeed. So far as the Canadian Corps was concerned, it definitely ended Field Marshal Haig's first phase, and its repercussions along the West Front heartened our battling armies and brought dismay to the councils of the enemy. More perhaps than any other battle of this period, it broke his spirit, weakened his stomach for the fight, and set up that general rot which so soon was to convert his retreat into what was little better than a rout. But on October 2nd, we knew nothing of this. The historian, with before him the results of a battle, cannot enter into the feelings of the men who fought it. He cannot envisage their tired bodies and wearied spirits. 
from his wide survey he fails to realize that even as they congratulate themselves on a victory and lick their sores they are girding themselves for the next great battle certainly few in the canadian corps could then grasp its full significance indeed we had had such a grueling had lost so heavily that common talk was that we should go out of the line to refit it was said that already our first division had been taken out we knew the boche was beaten because given everything in his favor on that never to be forgotten night of october first and second he had failed to come again and next day had abandoned us to the bloody field but we quite expected him to bring up new divisions and throw them in once more battle vision is extremely limited everyone is intensely engaged on his own particular job his concentration and preoccupation do not permit him to survey intelligently the front as a whole he hears but immediately forgets that so-and-so on our right is doing great things and down south the boche have fallen back many miles for him the enemy immediately in front is everything that is the fellow he has to tackle and overcome and his experience is that when he has done it once he will have to do it all over again a few miles further on he respects the enemy because he has come to know him as a good fighting man he cannot understand his psychology he cannot understand how his machine gunners after putting up a desperate resistance and taking terrible toll of our ranks throw up their hands to the cry of kamerad directly we are on them with bombs and cold steel but brave man himself he admits that up to a certain point and particularly in those long waves of counter-attack the boche is brave too he cannot in a word conceive that the enemy he has fought four years under all sorts and conditions is about to crumple up and in six weeks time will be content to sign a shameful armistice he sees going over his head our propaganda balloons and has heard they are doing good work but then he has picked up german propaganda and lit his pipe with it such then was the attitude of mind of the regimental officer and the men in the ranks but they were mighty pleased to have given the boche such a licking but on october second they were more intent on riding their way into comfortable winter quarters in combray than on anything else word went round that the british corps on our left was to winter in combray we were very peeved what then did we think about it all we thought so long as fine weather lasted we should punish the boche as hard as we could and finish the job next spring when the american army would have attained great strength and gained real battle experience let us try to put ourselves back into that state of mind captured enemy orders had exhibited desperate efforts to return to the battle tactics of the successful years by abandonment of the principle of the thinly held screen of machine guns backed by great depth of defense this system was adopted as the consequence of a weakened manpower resulting from his abortive offensive of the previous summer the final bid for victory his plans were then so perfected his preparation on such a scale that he was convinced failure was impossible he did fail we are not here concerned with the causes but he came so perilously near success that the strategic situation on the marne warranted his throwing in every available bayonet when it developed that all this tremendous sacrifice of manpower had been in vain 
So far from losing heart, he took best measures possible to avert defeat and the annihilation of his armies. For his offensive, he substituted a mobile defensive, shortening his lines and seeking in every way to economize and augment his depleted manpower. His chief surprise packet of 1918 was the enormous number of his machine guns. He proposed, in fact, to base his defense on machine gun posts instead of rifles, and a better illustration of his system could not offer than the character of the opposition encountered by the Canadian Corps during the Battle of Combray. Theoretically, a machine gun every ten yards should have stopped infantry attacking over open ground, but in practice it failed. Failure thus demonstrated he sought to return to defensive by the counter-offensive of field gray masses, as was shown on October 1st. Passive defense proved ruinous to his morale. To regain even local initiative, he must have something like equality of manpower where its need is supreme on the shock front of battle. A document we captured at Combray instructs commanding officers that they must no longer depend on a perfunctory front line of resistance, nor on outposts of machine gunners, with infantry supports and reserves deeply echeloned in the rear. The danger is pointed out that the driving in of the light front line tends to create disorder and spread consternation behind. Front lines must be held in force with supports and reserves well forward. Particular attention is to be given to the protection of positions by anti-tank contrivances. Finally, the troops are exhorted to die at their posts if they hope to keep the enemy out of the fatherland. The results of these admonitions was seen in the Battle of Combray. There was a return to infantry counterattacks. These, in turn, could be afforded only by a shortening of the line. This fierce battle, therefore, which seemed to our men engaged in it but the opening of the most intensive fighting of the campaign, in reality compelled the enemy to begin the retreat he was so soon to inaugurate. We had exhausted his reserves, and he must shorten his line. With his back to his own frontier, not only would his own line be considerably reduced, but he might feel he could count on a corresponding betterment in the morale of his men. From that new orientation, he might reason with some plausibility that he could return with success to the counter-offensive and teach the Allies such a lesson that they would be glad to conclude what he considered a reasonable peace. Well on in October, after his retreat had begun, that was how the situation appeared. If that train of reasoning had hung together, we had still before us some of the hardest fighting of the war. The question was whether the German soldier was capable of such incessant retreats without loss of fighting spirit. Could the German psychology, fed on superhuman doctrines, resist such constant sapping of its faith in its own invincibility? And, again, had Foch the power to turn this ordered retreat into a rout? The answers to these questions were given in the second phase, now opening for the Canadian Corps. Such were the obscurities through which we moved, but a great ray of illumination was about to break upon us had we the wit to seize its significance. This was the first enemy proposal for an armistice. With the material facts accumulating, the publication of official reports, memoirs, and diaries, 
and those intensely interesting human documents wherein unsuccessful leaders seem compelled to take the world into their confidence already the task of the historian grows easier and he is able to pierce the veil of mystery that hung before us in early october of nineteen eighteen a notable contribution of this nature is that of colonel bower head of the artillery department at great general headquarters but who is also credited by german public opinion with having been the special confidant and political inspirer of ludendorff he has published in pamphlet form the german general staff's version of the events which led up to the armistice and from the facts he relates the london daily telegraph has deduced that it is clear that ludendorff realized as early as the first half of august nineteen eighteen that the war was lost and that the request for an armistice was the result of urgent and repeated demands from general headquarters there is nothing in this new to the reader for we have seen in the account of the amiens show how after the events of august eighth ludendorff made up his mind that all hopes of gaining a military decision must be abandoned but it is extremely interesting and instructive to gather from colonel bower's narrative how the immediate effect of the storming of the canal du nord by the canadian corps was to convince ludendorff that not a day must elapse if any part of all that had been now lost in battle could be saved by negotiation colonel bower's pamphlet is in part as follows on june thirtieth nineteen eighteen herr von hintz had succeeded herr von kuhlmann it was hoped that he would succeed in spinning peace threads but nothing became known although the government that is to say also herr von hintz were thoroughly acquainted with the internal and military situation in his judgment of the situation general ludendorff was in complete agreement with the departmental chiefs concerned as early as august thirteenth that is to say as soon as he had a clear picture of the result of the reports received as to the inglorious august eighth ludendorff invited the chancellor and herr von hintz to a sitting and gave them a clear picture of the military situation on august fourteenth a fresh discussion took place under the presidency of the emperor the chief army command emphasized the necessity of an early conclusion of peace as we were at the time still strong but had to reckon with an increasing deterioration of the military situation herr von hintz renewed his promise to initiate peace overtures all through september the chief army command waited full of anxiety as to what fruits the presumed activity of the foreign office would bear but when four weeks had passed without result ludendorff decided on september twenty eighth nineteen eighteen in complete agreement with all the responsible departmental chiefs of the operations section to report to the field marshal that the moment had come to submit to the imperial government the demand that peace negotiations should be inaugurated immediately and for this purpose an armistice proposed to the entente the field marshal agreed on september twenty ninth admiral von hintz and count rodern imperial ministry of finance who had been summoned to spa arrived at general headquarters from utterances of general ludendorff as to his negotiations with the secretary of state for foreign affairs it became known that hints had sketched a very gloomy picture of the internal political situation had described revolution as being at the door and had proposed an immediate reconstruction of the government after this had been confirmed the military situation and the promotion of the peace step were discussed 
Thereupon the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs declared that a peace offer could only be made by a new government, which must be supported by the confidence of the entire people. The old government, he said, was compromised both at home and abroad. It was regarded as mendacious and insincere. Herr von Hintz expressed the opinion that a new government could be formed by October 1st. His Majesty the Emperor charged Count Rodern to take in Berlin the necessary steps for the formation of a new government. The chief army command asked for an acceleration of the formation of the government. This the State Secretary for Foreign Affairs promised. He said that he anticipated no special difficulties. The Imperial Chancellor, who arrived at Spa on the afternoon of September 29th, took no further action. As Ludendorff received news that the negotiations for the formation of the new government were dragging, he called up his representative in Berlin on October 1st and urged him to put pressure on the vice-chancellor, von Peyer. Now that the chief army command has come to this grave decision, he said, we must insist that no time is lost. Peyer replied to the representations made to him that there was no one who could sign a peace offer, as the new chancellor had not yet been appointed, and that he was still uncertain whether he could succeed in forming a cabinet. He asked whether headquarters would not agree to a postponement of the peace offer. This suggestion brought him the same day the following peremptory telegram from Hindenburg. If by between seven and eight o'clock this evening there is the certainty that Prince Max of Baden will form a government, I agree to a postponement until tomorrow forenoon. Should, on the other hand, the formation of the government be in any way doubtful, I consider it necessary to issue the statement to the foreign governments tonight. Prince Max arrived in Berlin on the afternoon of October 1st, but now a new difficulty arose. Before he could accept the chancellorship, it was necessary for him to have the permission of the Grand Duke of Baden. This could only be obtained through the mediation of the Emperor, who was on the journey from Spa to Berlin. However, the imperial train was stopped at Cologne, and by a strenuous use of the telephone, the Grand Duke's consent was received by midnight. On the following morning at nine o'clock, the representative of headquarters submitted to the leaders of the Reichstag parties, who met under the chairmanship of the vice-chancellor, a report on the situation containing the following notable passages. The chief army command has been compelled to take a terribly grave decision and declare that, according to human probabilities, there is no longer any prospect of forcing peace on the enemy. Above all, two facts have been decisive for this issue. First, the tanks. The enemy has employed them in unexpectedly large numbers, where, after a very liberal clouding of our positions with artificial mist, they effected a surprise. Our men's nerves were often unequal to them. Here they broke through our first line, opened a way for their infantry, appeared in the rear, created local panics, and threw the control of the fighting into confusion. Where they had once been identified, our tank defense weapons and our artillery quickly settled with them. Then, however, the misfortune had already happened, and solely the successes of the tanks explain the large number of prisoners which so painfully reduced our strengths and brought about a more rapid consumption of reserves than we had hitherto been accustomed to. We were not in a position to oppose to the enemy equal masses of German tanks. Their construction would have exceeded the resources of our industry, 
which was strained to the uttermost, and other more important things would have to be neglected. But it is the reserve situation which has become absolutely decisive. The army entered a great battle with weak complements. In spite of all the measures adopted, the strength of our battalion sank from about 800 in April to about 540 at the end of September. Moreover, this number could only be maintained by the dissolution of 22 infantry divisions, the equivalent of 66 infantry regiments. The Bulgarian defeat devoured seven further divisions. There is no prospect of bringing these strengths to a higher level. The current enrollments, the convalescents, and the comings out will not even cover the losses of a tranquil winter campaign. Only the embodiment of the 1900 class will give the battalion strengths a single increase of 100 men. Then our last reserve of men will be exhausted. The losses in the battle now in progress have been unexpectedly high, especially in officers. More than ever the troops require the example of their officers, whether in defense or attack. The officers had to, and have, recklessly risked and sacrificed themselves. The regimental commanders and higher leaders fought in the front line. Only one example. In two days of battle, one division lost all its officers killed or wounded. Three regimental commanders were killed. The small body of active officers still available has melted away. The building up of the divisions coming from the great battle is now hardly practicable. What is true of officers is also true of non-commissioned officers. Through American help, the enemy is in a position to replace his losses. American troops as such are not of special value, to say nothing of being superior to ours. Where they attained initial successes by mass tactics, they were repulsed in spite of their superiority in numbers. It was, however, decisive that they were able to take over wide stretches of front and thus give the English and French the possibility to set free their own battle-tried divisions and create for themselves almost inexhaustible reserves. So far, our reserves have sufficed to fill the gaps. The railway brought them up promptly. Assaults of unparalleled severity were repulsed. The battles are described as of unexampled severity. Now our reserves are coming to an end. If the enemy continues to attack, the situation may demand that we retire fighting along large stretches of the front. In this way, we can continue the war for an indefinite time, impose heavy losses on the enemy, and leave behind us devastated country, but that can no longer give us victory. These perceptions and events brought to maturity in the minds of the General Field Marshal and General Ludendorff the decision to propose to the Emperor to attempt to break off the struggle, in order to spare the German nation and its allies further sacrifices. Just as our great offensive of July 15th was immediately broken off when its continuation was no longer commensurate with the necessary sacrifices, even so, it has now become necessary to abandon the continuation of the war as hopeless. Ausschusslos. We still have time for this. The German army is still strong enough to delay the enemy for months, to attain local successes, and to confront the Entente with fresh sacrifices. But every additional day brings the enemy nearer to the goal, which will make him less inclined to conclude a peace which would be tolerable for us. Therefore, no time must be lost. 
any twenty-four hours may change the situation for the worse and give the enemy a chance of clearly recognizing our present weakness that might have the most disastrous consequences for the prospects of peace as for the military situation commenting on this the daily telegraph says from colonel bower's narrative and the documents which he cites it is established beyond controversy that prince max's request for a cessation of hostilities sent off on the night of october fourth and fifth was the result of the action not of the politicians but of the generals and that the motive behind it was the realization that germany had been beaten in the field and could only escape appalling military disaster by the transfer of the struggle from the battleground to the green table any hopes that ludendorff may have had of being able to stem the tide were finally wrecked in this battle of cambrai the canadian corps had done far more than break down the defense on their front they had pierced through his entire system had cut off his armies in the north from his armies in the south and had turned the hindenburg line so that thereafter our third and fourth armies were able to march forward capturing towns and villages and encountering for the most part but enemy rearguards fighting delaying actions only at st quentin was a real organized defense offered and that soon broke down before the valor of british and australian troops end of part three chapter ten recording by kathleen nelson austin texas july two thousand and ten